Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Producer Jonah here. And just a reminder that if this topic is important to you, you can be part of the conversation too. Just look for Principle of Charity on your favorite social media platform. And if you like what we're doing, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Cheers. Welcome to Principle of Charity. I'm Lloyd Vogelman and I'm here with my cousin and buddy, Emil Sherman. We're here to inject some generosity and curiosity back into our conversations. Principle of Charity tells us to seek the truth, not win the fight. To first put aside our own views and try to understand the other viewpoint before we instinctively reject it. Emil, what's our topic for today? Thanks, Lloyd. Well, our topic today is, is more immigration a good or bad thing? Now, immigration is such a heat-provoking topic as it touches on many things we hold dear. Our borders are our collective skin, and the question of who we let in activates our primal instincts, leaving the more rational parts of our brain too often on the sideline. There's our sense of security. Who we let in can feel and can be dangerous, but we're also open and curious. We want new ideas, new brain and brawn power, even new food to fuel our country. And a larger population can bring greater economic growth and prosperity. You know, most of us have a desire to be bigger and more powerful. And we, and we definitely don't want to get smaller. Fertility rates are below replacement level in most wealthy countries and demographics are aging us. It's hard to solve this without immigration. We're also motivated by kindness or lack thereof when it comes to refugees in particular. Do we open our door to strangers or do we see them as a threat? There's our sense of identity at stake as well. Who are we as a nation? Are we defined by an ethnicity or particular culture, as many nations today still are? Or do we define ourselves through our heritage, our stories, our values? There's also the fear or excitement around what immigrants actually do to our country. Will they take our jobs? With each job, they take removing one from the local population in a zero-sum game sense. Or do they add to the pool of consumers and producers that make us bigger and more interesting? Are immigrants more likely to turn to crime or are they in fact harder working than the local population? Will they integrate enough to join the story of our nation or will they remain foreign? And most importantly for this episode, how many immigrants can our natural environment and our infrastructure bear before the burden is felt by the local population? And are these hard limits or can we invent and invest our way out of them? Now, a lot of this is fact-based and there's a lot of great data on the real effect of immigration on a country, which we'll no doubt get into in this episode. But evidence can't always contain the values that creep in as we read evidence in ways that suit our worldview. So, Lloyd, how open should we be and who have we got to help us through this? Thanks, Emil. Our two guests today are Bob Carr and George Megalogenis. Bob is a former foreign minister of Australia and also the longest continuously serving premier in New South Wales history. 
As Premier, Bob received the World Conservation Union International Parks Merit Award for creating 350 new national parks. At present, he is a professor of climate and business at the Institute of Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. Our other guest, George Megalogenis. George is a renowned journalist, political commentator and author. George's book, The Australian Moment, won the 2013 Prime Minister's Literary Award for Nonfiction. He is the recipient of a number of literary awards and nominations. Now, Emil, both George and Bob recognize the great benefits that immigration brings, economically and culturally. But where George thinks that there's a lot more scope to increase immigration in wealthy countries like Australia, Bob is much more concerned about its effects on our environment, infrastructure, and lifestyle. Emil, let's bring on the guests. Thank you so much, uh, George and Bob, for joining us. George, let's start with you. What are the benefits of immigration? Why should countries, particularly wealthy countries, lean towards more immigration? There are two very, very strong reasons for immigration uh, for countries like Australia, which have been role models for the last 60 and 70 years. The first one is cultural. It's emotional. The addition of people from other parts of the world uh, gives you a perspective that you otherwise wouldn't have. Uh, We can say that as Australians because we ran the counter experiment for about 50 years under the White Australia policy. Uh, we narrow-casted our immigration intake essentially just to, just to England and a, and, a, and, a, and a couple of groups from Europe. And over the course of that 40 or 50-year period, uh, we were more divided uh, than we were at any other point in our federated history. Uh, the society barely held together during the First World War, uh, during the debate over conscription. And that closed Australia which ran from, as I said, from the first part of Federation all the way up to the 1940s, also didn't perform well economically. Uh, It was uh, one of the slowest growing countries uh, in the so-called rich world at the time. When we reopened the door after the Second World War, uh, we had not just a better economic story to tell, but a much more culturally diverse story to tell. The second part of it, and this is now a practical uh, aspect to it, uh, I I would underline the emotional and underline the cultural, but the practical aspect of it for a lot of rich societies today is that since around 2011, when the first of the baby boomers reached retirement age, uh, rich world societies don't have the local born population to replace the workers who leave the labour market. So increasingly countries like Australia have to look overseas uh, for skilled workers and that's not necessarily a bad thing but I'll just give you some very, very quick context. Uh, through that post-war program, uh, through the 50s and, and 60s when Australia sourced uh, predominantly migrants from Southern Europe, including my parents who migrated from Greece in the 50s and the 60s separately. Uh, For every one migrant, there were two Australian babies added to the population. Uh, Since the turn of the 21st century, uh, for every baby added, there's been two migrants added to the population. Now, that isn't because somehow Australia uh, tricked up its migration program because it wanted to outnumber its local born. It's because since 1976 in Australia, and it's a different date in other countries, uh, we fell below replacement rate in terms of our fertility. So 76 seems like a long time ago, but 
but the uh, but the cascading effect of, of lower fertility starts to strike at around 2011 when the first of the baby boomers uh, reach retirement age. And there simply isn't enough people coming through to replace them. So even if you were, for argument's sake, to want to choose uh, a native uh, born population as the engine room of your of your of your sort of culture, your society, and your economy. That option has been removed from most rich countries because of lower fertility. So, it, so it's not just Australia, but other rich countries have also had that dip in in replacement rate and and increase in immigration. Yeah, it's not just us. And in fact, in a funny way, we're 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 a bit later to this party than most countries. Japan obviously is the prime example, but the Japanese have always uh, trusted their own race. Uh, mm. If I could put it, if I could put it in in the gentlest framing of that of that yeah. word, they uh, have trusted their own people to to sort of run their culture and run their society. Uh, but they too have found, especially the last few years as their societies age, uh, that they don't have enough workers to support them. Sure. Well, thanks, George. Um, Bob, let's move to you. I mean, let's look at some of the limits and downsides of immigration for wealthy countries like Australia. How do you see that? We've run the highest rate of immigration of any developed country. The population growth rate in Australia has been higher than any other developed country. Kevin Rudd spoke about a big Australia. He said, I like a big Australia. I said, the rivers aren't getting any more robust. The soils aren't getting any deeper. The rainfall is not getting any more reliable. In a sense, people fail to grasp. They fail to grasp the geographic reality here. That is that Australia is more like North Africa than like the United States. Australia is a narrow, fertile coastal strip. And that goes a long way to explaining the absence of a a rocky mountain system and the rivers that flow down both sides of it, the absence of more or less reliable rainfall is the reason that when we ramp up immigration, as we did um, in the last 15 years, uh, before it was interrupted by COVID, obviously, two thirds of the intake, even higher according to some figures, gravitated to Sydney and Melbourne. This is a story about whether we should continue to grow by a rate equivalent to adding the population of Canberra to Australia's population every year and seeing that go to the three big cities, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane. That's what it's about. And it is really about whether you want to see those cities transformed into cities of towers. I think if we're going to have 40 million by 2035, which is anyone's guess, of course, you're really looking at transforming Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane too, to a city where the population lives in towers. What's wrong with living in towers, given so much of the world lives in towers? I'm all about choices in housing type. When I was Minister for Planning and Environment, 1984 to 1988 in New South Wales, the battle was to see that there were more towers, more townhouses and villa houses, medium density, because choice was constricted. Now we're frog-marching the population into living in towers which are very small and very cramped without the opportunity for lavish urban parks. We're going to look at some of the infrastructure and environmental issues in a little more detail later, but let's move to you, George. I'd just like to try to spell out, I guess, for the listeners, some of the economic arguments in favour for, for more immigration. How does a larger population create a wealthier country, just on a basic level? On the most basic level, so we're talking about the people who, who, who land in a place like Australia in the 21st yeah. century. Yeah. And I can, I can do this safely by, by personal anecdote. 
the generation that my parents uh, were part of that migrated in the 50s and 60s after the Second World War, uh, most of them came from uh, rural uh, settlements in places like Italy, Greece, the former Yugoslavia. That's where predominantly the, those those three areas um, were uh, were the drivers of our post-war migration sure, wave. Sure. Most of them hadn't completed primary school. On arrival, they took blue-collar jobs and we measured the success, the economic story uh, of migration through two generations. We measured firstly the success of the of the uh, of the new arrivals in sort of getting jobs, uh, owning their own homes, setting up small businesses, and through the kids, the second generation, uh, their attainment of education and their success in the professional workforce. We know the data in Australia, and this is data that does tend to now uh, replicate in, even in the United States and certainly in the United Kingdom. Uh, the children of non-English speaking migrants, the local born children of non-English speaking migrants, the second generation tend to outperform their peer group at, at, in education and in work. So that is, that is a two generation argument uh, for migration. Since the 21st century, because in a sense, the labor force need has changed as the population ages. Now, by the way, an aging population of itself is not a bad thing. It means we're living longer. Yeah. Uh, but we're living longer partly because we're not losing children to the to the rate that we used to lose them in the 20th century. So families are having fewer children, and that is the that is the long term consequence. Uh, sorry, that is the long term story that brings you to a situation like we've all got in the 21st century. Now, the migrant that lands in the 21st century, and in Australia they've been predominantly from China and more recently India, uh, land fully formed. So they are younger and better education, better educated than the population at large. So they've essentially skipped a generation of integration. They don't land like my parents did at the bottom of the pile and then work their way up and have their children embedded in the middle class. They land in the middle or in the upper middle. They arrive as university students yep. or as skilled workers. Now that group uh, you import off the shelf, uh, and I don't mean to make it sound that mechanical, but that group slots into your middle faster than any other previous generation of migrant. Now, in a, in, in, a, in a global context, there is a competition for that globally mobile, highly skilled, uh, innovative, creative, adaptable yeah. Yeah. Human, human being. Every society needs them, and it needs them in numbers sufficient to keep their economy growing. Now, the reason why you would want your economy to keep growing is so it can deliver services to people. And rich countries, because uh, they can afford it, can build decent social safety nets. Uh, I'll George, give you... George let me interrupt for a second, yeah. just ask you, because we've talked quite a bit about immigration being used to fill that gap in the replacement level yes. um, population drop. But you've also advocated a true growth in population, seeing that an actual increase in the size of Australia and probably other countries is good for a country. I'm trying to get it. If Australia had a double the size population, putting the environmental limits aside, which I'm sure Bob's itching to get into in more detail there, what, what are the benefits of that for a country? Why would you want a larger Australia? One of the reasons is a larger Australia uh, can look after itself. Mm. At 25 million, we're probably uh, small enough to still rely on great and powerful friends who may or may not be reliable in the future. At 25 million uh, uh, in our region, we are a minnow. 
in terms of in terms of numbers. Whilst we're well off, uh, we're still very small uh, in terms of numbers. At 35 to 40, and then ultimately 50 million in the second half of the 21st century, we are a, a middle-sized country that can behave like a middle-sized. Are we more prosperous? Country. We should be more prosperous if we manage if we if we manage the growth, if we manage the intake. We should be more prosperous if we're in a position to pick and choose the groups that we yeah. settle in Australia and in the places we settle Australia. I mean, ideally, ideally, the discussion you have about population is how to share the benefits between the cities and the regions. Right. Now, right. The, point, the point Bob makes about the concentration in Melbourne and Sydney, uh, two-thirds settling in Melbourne and Sydney in the, in the last 20 or so years, that is correct. Uh, two-thirds of all the Indians in Australia live in Melbourne and Sydney. Three-quarters of all the Chinese in Australia live in Melbourne and Sydney, and half of that entire group live in, of the Chinese live just in Sydney. Yeah. Now, Melbourne and Sydney are f- a little over, combined, a little over 40% of the Australian population. I can't find a rich country that is comparable with its two largest cities, a roughly equal size, taking up 40% of the entire population. Bob, we're going to come specifically back to the environment and, and infrastructure in a second, but I just wanted to step back a little and ask you, you know, there's an assumption and we're looking at the interest in actually increasing the size of a country and what are the benefits of increasing. There is this uh, assumption that bigger is better, bigger economy, as George has articulated, we're more powerful, we're probably more p- prosperous. Is that a faulty assumption at its core? When when are we big enough as a country or is it always better putting environmental limits aside? Is it always better to grow? Well, I reject any notion it's always better to grow and I think, I think uh, growth is a cliché. It's been a mantra of old-fashioned politicians forever. Um, And we go on as if we're still in the 1950s when we had manufacturing industry. And where I grew up in in the uh, Maroubra and Matraville, there were car plants and old-fashioned chemical works and the migrants, the British and Scottish migrants, from the two big migrant hostels and the Germans from one of them, Germans and Dutch from one of them. This is about the mid-50s when I'm in primary school. Mm. All, all got these jobs building cars for Leylands or General Motors in the old-fashioned, the old-fashioned manufacturing booming economy of Australia Unlimited 1950s. Mm. And we've got a different economy today and it's not unreasonable to say the focus ought to be on growth per head, growth per head. And I just noticed in passing some work by the Commonwealth Bank that distinguished between GDP, that is the size of the pie, and GDP per capita, the size of each slice. And it reported that when using per capita measures, growth in living standards in Australia has stagnated. And for some sections of the resident population, in in particular younger people, it's gone backwards. So we're talking about the growth of the economy overall being driven by ambitious immigration, running at at much higher levels, net immigration, than in the 1990s. We really ought to be focusing on growth per head. Another key economic argument is that obviously high immigration benefits some sectors. The construction sector does enormously well out of ramped up population growth. And they're an important part of any economy. They do well, but there's a huge hit on state budgets. 
And with Sydney's population growing by 21% since 2004, Melbourne's by a staggering 36%, every aspect of the urban fabric has come under intense pressure. You've got governments building rail and road projects that are costing a billion or more than that per kilometre. The burden on state, the, the, the motive force in state politics for some time has been population growth. That's why governments, that's why, why, why governments were urgently seeking to privatise electricity and copying the political flak there. That's why governments, their state budget straining, were taking political risks with sometimes not the most appropriate infrastructure projects. In Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland, the stress on state budgets from meeting the demands of increased population has been the thing that changed governments. But shouldn't there be more shouldn't there be more taxpayers? You have more immigrants coming in and you've got a bigger pool of taxpayers to prop up the coffers. Yeah, well this, this is why Dick Smith says, um, I think accurately, um, growth through reliance on hyper-immigration is a Ponzi scheme. A Ponzi scheme. It's a dog chasing its tail. Why is it a Ponzi scheme? You, you might have a, a cash flow gap, but at, at some point it's real. The immigrants are real. The immigrants... Yeah, so I mean, when, yeah, yeah. When, 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 when does the orchestra stop? You stop, you stop when, you, when you get to 40 million and you've changed the nature of urbanism in the narrow, fertile coastal strip in the southeastern edge of the continent, do you say 40 million is more or less appropriate? And we're going to, we're going to ch- turn down the growth, turn down the growth, Right. And, and go a bit more slowly? Or, is the race, or, or, or does the Business Council of Australia say in 2035 or 2040, we must, Australia needs a big, bold national target and 100 million by the end of the century is what we ought to go for. <laughs> so, so at what stage do you say... That's a fair point. At what stage do you, do you say um, we go for stability? At some point we're going to have to because the size of the world population is tapering off sometime this century. At some stage, we're going to have to we're going to have to reconsider the rush for large raw numbers. I read a really interesting book about true open borders, advocating for true open borders. You know, we let capital and trade by and large move move easily across borders, but not people. And one statistic I read is that if people up and moved and took a job anywhere, estimated gains worldwide are between fifty and hundred percent of gross world product. And that's sort of like leaving leaving a doubling of world wealth on the table. And this obviously doesn't include non-economic benefits of allowing people to live wherever they want to. Isn't it the most efficient thing to do to maximise happiness worldwide, just to open up all borders? So we're now taking a blank piece of paper that is the globe as opposed to the nation state. Uh, That's correct. Well, the nation states as they are now, if we just said people can move where they want to move, and it'll be the most efficient use of human resources worldwide. Well, theoretically, it would be. It, politically, it's an impossible thing to ask for. Um, but one part, one part of that argument, which is demonstrably true, and you can, you can demonstrate it at the micro level, uh, nations with big immigration programs tend to find, especially uh, people that arrive from poorer countries, that most of the... Um, most of the aid work that's done by the nation state is actually done by the migrant on behalf of their family back home. So, yeah. so the money that gets sent back home, uh, so Australia at the moment runs, even with 
closed uh, closed borders uh, for COVID for the last 18 months has still been running a, a, a labour scheme of, of, with workers from the Pacific Islands. And the money that they remit back home uh, has a bigger bang for its buck, pardon the cliche, uh, than any aid program a nation state um, can 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 conjure up and then deliver in a third country or in a second country. So in that sense, most economists would probably agree with the open borders, uh, free flow of people, but no politician would ever accept a proposition like that. So what stands in its way? Just well, I'll give you I'll give you uh, a very practical. So this is this is where the theory and the reality bump into each other. There is a certain population beyond which it's impossible to absorb it in real time. What do you mean by absorb? If you had 300,000 people turning up in Australia in a single year as opposed to 250,000, that extra 50,000 are not going to find a house. So, so this is all an issue of technology, infrastructure, planning. It's not an issue of the effect of immigrants per se. No, absolutely not. By metaphor, the Germans, when they decided to accept, when Angela Merkel uh, decided to accept up to a million uh, refugees from Syria... Uh, our advice back to the Germans from Australia, you know, at a, at a sort of official to official level is you can't take that many people at once. It's not going to, it's a very grand humanitarian gesture, but the country can't absorb that many people. You mean culturally as well? as uh, Culturally is less of an issue. They've had less of a problem culturally than they imagined. Uh, it's mm. just it's just difficult to squeeze that many people into a place at once. Quickly. Quickly. What do you think the, give, a, give us a number for Australia. What, what is our optimum level? So you're, ask, you're, you're asking me for a really rough rule of thumb and you're not yeah. going to hold me to the decimal I'm point. I'm not holding yeah. you to anything. I've got no power to hold you to anything. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. It's okay. Remember, uh, I'm an economist by training, so we do tend to weigh things like fruit or isn't. So, um, sure. Uh, I'd, be, I'd be looking at around 50 because uh, Bob alluded to it earlier. We know at some point the global population taps out and starts to, it starts to decline. And one of the reasons why it will do that as a globe is that you know, hopefully many more countries are in the position that the rich world is in now where they fall below replacement rate. Now, in a funny way, falling below replacement rate is a sign of health. It's a sign of rude health and it's a sign of affluence and prosperity uh, for a country. Hmm. So hopefully you get many more countries in that position. Yeah, yeah. Bob, let's drill down on, on some of the environmental limits now. I mean, the last few hundred years has seen enormous economic growth worldwide, which has lifted billions out of poverty, doubled life expectancy, all the things we know. But within that, the environment has generally been seen as an obstacle in the path to progress or a resource to fuel it. Is the issue with the amount of immigration or the environmental limits, as in if you could click your fingers or we could invest or invent our way into um raising those environmental limits so that yeah. we could absorb more people. Yeah. Would you would you want to bring in, if, we, if you, we could say to you, okay, there's a plan that will allow Australia to double its population, would you be in favour of that plan? You, you have to address water in it. That would be uh, at the top of the list. But you'd have other, you'd, you'd have other considerations as well. Um, sure. Access to high-quality um, urban parkland, for example, if you set that as a goal yeah. and provided some quantification, um, that would be a stimulus for government to take take the the hugely generous land allocated to one recreational pursuit, that is golfing, <laughs> and to give ourselves some splendid, spacious 
multi-use urban parks. Would that be a favourable thing to you? Would you say, great, 50 million is a good thing for our country if our environment could wear it? I'm I'm prepared to have a debate around, say, 20 key indicators and an enhancement of water management. That's a debate that's worth having in your mind. It, it, it's worth having, and I would make I would make the indicators rigorous. Rigorous. You know, we've got the lens on on Australia, or as the the country itself. But if you pull back to the world and you look at where the immigrants are coming from, they might be causing greater environmental degradation in the country that they're in because the technologies might be worse and the infrastructure infrastructure might be worse there. How do you think about the sort of global environmental damage or improvement of moving people from, say, you know, much poorer countries into Australia? Listen, if we if we quadrupled our annual immigration intake, we'd not be making an appreciable uh, an appreciable difference to the urban degradation in Kenya uh, or Nigeria, where the population is headed for growth that's astonishing. In the next in the next fifty years, so we'd be doing more damage here than we would be benefiting there. Yeah, in a sense. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the the the, the challenge you've got in the Sahel um, or in the, or in Nigeria, um, um, Kenya is so vast, just so vast, given the projections for population growth. A million, a population of a, a billion, a billion in Nigeria. That's, that's not relieved. The environmental challenge that represents um, is not relieved by, um, by doubling the Australian immigration intake. Yeah, yeah. We, 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 we have missed out historically on, on being ambitious when we had the opportunity. You think of Jewish immigration from Central and Eastern Europe, from Germany, in the years before 1939. Uh, we loosened the entry just a little bit. And if we'd been generous, if we if we distributed visas to the Jews of Europe in the leap between, certainly certainly between the, the Nuremberg Laws or Kristallnacht and the outbreak of war when it became impossible, we would have benefited hugely when that energy and enterprise took off. I think we missed the opportunity to, with Indo-Chinese immigration, Whitlam could have been more ambitious, even Fraser. We're in danger of missing the opportunity with the Afghans. I've been involved in one case um, of getting a a young Afghan woman through the barriers to Islamabad two weekends ago, and she arrived in Australia Mm. last weekend. There are so many people threatened with, threatened in all sorts of ways, who'd be like, like the Af- Afghans we've recruited over the last 20 years, just superb immigrants. My, my approach to immigration certainly permits the notion of a big opportunistic uh, flurry of visa entries when we've got na- national groups who, who have made proven successes in the past available for us in big numbers. What we haven't touched on enough is understanding how immigrants do fare as compared to local population. You know, there is, there are... Um, people who think that they're a drain on welfare and, and, and our resources, or, or do they contribute to welfare through their taxes? How does that net out? Are they, on average, more likely to turn to crime or actually less likely? 
Are they a danger to the local population or a boost? I think a lot of this touches on that sort of central fear or openness to immigration that people have at their core, and then they read statistics within that context. What's the truth of all of this? That's a, it's a very good question. Uh, let's break it down by looking at the last 18 months uh, when we haven't had any immigration to Australia at all, uh, where more people have left the country than have come the other way. And in fact, because we've had a net emigration from Australia, we've only had two periods outside of the world wars where that's occurred. That's the long depression of the 1890s and briefly in the 1930s at the start of the Great Depression. So when I look at, especially back at those two periods, uh, I see I see crime going up, not down. The absence of migrants uh, didn't reduce the crime rate. I see crime going up in the 1890s and I certainly see crime going up in the, in the early 1930s. Yeah. Just, yeah. As a, just, as a, just as a very, very simple History 101 yeah. exercise. Yeah. Uh, so you, your economic environment tends to dictate your uh, uh, your social stability or instability. Not the migrant or not, not the migrant. migrant. The migrant, in fact, is is a loose and a very arbitrary um, uh, variable that people pluck in for that people put back in for political reasons without considering the economic context at the time. And when a migrant comes in, are they a low skill migrant? Are they taking a job of a of a native, or do they end up doing jobs that maybe natives don't want to do and they end up being consumers and, you know, net uh, contributors to the, to the economy. It's almost certainly the case in, in and we could, we, could, we, could, we could go with the Australian experience. Uh, the 50s and the 60s was a period of full employment, so there were no jobs being taken by migrants. In fact, migrants were adding to the net wealth of the country and they're also making the place much more interesting because when we opened the doors at the end of the Second World War, 90% of the Australian population... Uh, was locally born. And of the 10% that were the migrants, half of that entire group came from one country, England. So we were as white as we wanted to be, and we weren't happy with that situation at the end of the Second World War. We needed to populate or perish. We were too small at that point. And over the course of the 50s and 60s, migrants didn't take anybody's job because there was a job for anyone who wanted it. Now, Bob alluded to this fact that we ran a a manufacturing-based growth model uh, manufacturing was overwhelmingly the largest employer of not just men but women. Through the 70s, which is when the Southeast Asian uh, wave of migration came, uh, a lot of the Vietnamese landed in a period of rising unemployment. And we've got a very interesting case study in the Vietnamese. So they arrived in the country that didn't have a job for everyone. Uh, they did cop a slur on arrival, as the Italians did before them, as um, as the Irish did in the 19th century, uh, you know, been prone to crime. Uh, you know, the, the, the triads was the was sort of the, the knock on the Vietnamese, as the mafia was knocked on, was the knock on the um, on the Italians. None of those things turned it, turned out to be true. In fact, the crime rates of the Italians, and certainly the crime rates of the Vietnamese, didn't overshoot the crime rates of the population at large. In fact, unfortunately in Australia, the Australian most likely to be arrested and imprisoned is the first Australian, and that is because of the structural institutional racism directed at our first people. So the crime argument doesn't work for me, but the 70s is, again, a very interesting story because the the children of the Vietnamese, the Australian-born children of the Vietnamese, outperform their peers. So by the time they turn up through high school, university, and they and they then enter the workforce. And remember the timeframes we're talking about. You start to see them at the turn of the twenty first century, sitting in the middle of the income ladder, 
basically culturally and economically driving your society. Uh, we've sort of been around this block a few times as a settler nation, as a so-called settler nation, and each time the, the most recent arrival, which is sort of chained to this whipping post of, um, you know, everything that the society could fling at them, you know, crime. In fact, you almost have to juggle two contradictory thoughts in, in your head. Bob, an interesting idea that I came across recently, I wanted to run this by you, okay? Climate change seems to be hitting poorer countries disproportionately hard as bec- because they tend to sort of hug the equator region and those countries are going to find it much harder to grow food and, and live in. Yet, unfortunately, climate change might actually make certain areas more fertile that are often in the wealthier countries, which are sort of further away from the the equator. In the name of climate change, should we be welcoming more immigrants from, you know, the countries that are going to be really hit by whether that's not going to support life in in an easy way? Well, even if we quadrupled immigration, that would not be enough to relieve the problems of the delta of Bangladesh, for example, um, or of the desertification of Central Africa. For but it example. would relieve them for the people who we welcome, <laughs> not for everybody. Yeah, well, that, that, do we take environmental refugees? Well, we, we might be taking, yes, we might be yes. taking the population of Kiribati. Uh, one of the very smart things I, mm. I witnessed Australia doing in the, the period I was foreign minister was our aid program on that atoll nation, Kiribati. Um, it mm. was directed at, at giving the population two things, a knowledge of English and trade skills that met Australian and New Zealand certificate standards. So that if the worst thing, the worst happened with Kiribati, its 100,000 population could be welcomed by Australia and New Zealand, not as desperate environmental refugees, but as qualified, um, valued migrants who'd fit in to Australia easily, speaking the language and having Mm. qualifications as plumbers and motor mechanics. I thought that was very smart. Um, So, yeah, yeah, I think your argument applies to those Pacific states, the small island developing states of the Pacific. Just Can I just go back to something George was saying about, I, I think it's a striking part of the Australian success with multiculturalism, that there was a time when immigration from Indochina was seen as the first failure because of the focus on crime and unemployment, welfare dependency, And then overnight, without anyone noticing the transition, it's a great success story with the sons and daughters doing well because their parents took a keen interest in their progress at school and and kids who'd who'd come here as boat people through camps, yes, in Malaysia or the Philippines, um, (laughs) ended up up at the University of Western Sydney uh, surging ahead with computer science. It's it's just a, a fabulous story. And all of a sudden, people drop the notion that immigration from Indochina was a, a little embarrassing hiccup or a certified failure of the Australian, the generally happy post-war immigration story. Um, and, and the same with something else that people 
don't want to mention. We had real problems with the integration of Islamic background Lebanese. They were overrepresented in the crime statistics and they were a big problem to, for policing in Western Sydney. Uh, there was a lot of car rebirthing and drug trade activity. And it took a lot of innovative community building work and mobilising uh, people from the Arabic background community. But I tell you what, it worked. And today, yeah, yeah, for the last 10 years, it's been hard. You wouldn't have found a reference. After all that focus on gang rapes and the rest, these days, you don't find a focus. It's, it's a good segue to talk for a moment about culture. I mean, George, immigration policies in Western countries like Australia are not racially based. It means when we open our doors, by and large, anyone from any culture and country, right, can come who meets the criteria. Yet, yet humans are also part tribal creatures. And to have solidarity as a nation, we need to feel like we're part of the same team. Do, do societies as a whole find it hard to absorb big shifts in ethnicity and culture? And, and even if the evidence is that they're actually quite good at it over a generation or two, why do people still feel it? How do you think about culture as a limiting factor to, to immigration? It can be a limiting factor when the host nation insists that you, you know, literally flush your parents uh, down the toilet, that you have to disown your heritage. Right. That the way to become, say, an Australian, and we did have an assimilationist policy for quite a while. I mean, where we're at now is through 50, 60, 70 years of trial and error, uh, with big waves of migration uh, from beginning with uh, the first intake after the Second World War. So for the first, tw for this first 20 or so years, we ran an assimilationist policy. We also tried assimilation with, our, with first Australians, uh, tried to breed the colour out of them, uh, which, was, which was the phrase at Federation. Now, those, the reason why those things don't work is you're confronting a human being and telling them that everyone that's passed before them within their family tree... Uh, is a non-person. Now, yeah. no, that is no way to talk to another human being. Yeah. So a nation state can't talk to an individual that way, uh, and it's taken us a while to figure this out. But weirdly, I think Australia is one of the first countries to figure it out properly. And mm. the, way, the way we handle it now, now the phrase that came out of the 70s is multiculturalism, but the way we identify, and our identity tends to shift, and I can could, I could speak to you as a second-generation migrant, as an Australian-born uh, Greek migrant parents, uh, the switch between the Greek in me and the Australian in me depends on the time and place. Yeah. As a, as a young boy growing up, I wanted to fit in as much as I could. Greekness tends to come out in your early 20s. Uh, I had this phrase, and pardon the use of the W word, I had this phrase which I used in a book called Fault Lines, which Bob Carr graciously launched in the end of 2003 that there were three phases of wogdom, as I called it, for, 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 for the child of immigrants in Australia growing up. The first phase was cowed. That's the phase where you get picked on at school. The second phase is cocky. That's the phase when uh, the ethnic side of your identity is almost overly expressed, where you start to re-own the words that were, th re-own the taunts that were thrown at you. Uh, there was a movie around that time called The Wog Boy, which sort of celebrated Greek inclusion at the time. The I third, produced the sequel. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and the, Absolutely. And the third phase was connected. At that point, it didn't matter who called you a wog because you didn't doubt yourself um, as an Australian. Uh, 
Now, I could happily call myself a Greek-Australian, but the emphasis now is on the Australian part. Where I look at where I look at younger migrants, whether they're skilled migrants or whether they're whether they're Australian-born kids of, of a refugee cohort, Vietnamese, Somalian, Lebanese. Uh, if I find them, especially young men, if I find them a little a, a, a little ethnic in their pride, uh, I don't have a single problem with that because as long as Australia continues to run with the formula that it's that it's adapted and perfected, uh, at some point they'll be more Australian than they appreciate uh, and the next in, generation in, ships in here as and well. now but but even within their own life cycles they'll be, they'll yeah. feel more australian now think, again yeah. the, the only way to, the only way for a nation state to handle this is is to not make that crazy demand at the start that you disown your heritage that you disown yeah. your parents yeah of course the onus then on the migrant is not to impose their heritage on the dominant culture and that's yeah. always the thing you have to weigh Bob, final question for you. The world has for many decades seemed to move in the direction of liberalism and democracy. But with that under threat, is there an argument to reduce immigration from countries that are illiberal or undemocratic undemocratic, if we have reason to believe that the immigrants themselves are less likely to believe in those values? Or does the fact that they're coming here or the assimilatory effects of being here mean that they'll end up absorbing our liberal democratic values once they're here? I, I think of the Chinese students at Sydney University, they, they've not yeah. made a decision to become Australians, they're there operating on the campus. Do you know what they did? They, they set up their own group to run in the campus elections. So they're from the People's Republic of China, which I remind you is a one-party political system. The party dominates everything in Chinese life. Um, they come to an Australian campus, they might have been here a year or two, They're participating in a multi-party election. They're doing preference deals with the Labor Club or the ALP Club. They're aware that there are two two rival Labor Party manifestations on the campus with the Greens. They're getting to know the Liberals and seeing a distinction between the Liberal Liberals and the Conservative Liberals. Hey, hey, they're from Communist China. They're on 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 an Australian campus for months and they're participating in multi-party election. If I were the, the party, the party man, the party secretary at the consulate in Sydney, I'd be writing reports expressing real concern <laughs> about how these kids were participating in a multi-party election, forgetting the Marxist models, a Marxist-Leninist model. We got we got nothing to worry about because, and we can have confidence in our own values. The pulling power of Australian democratic life should resolve this problem for us every time. That's a fantastic response. Lloyd, you're an immigrant, as, as, as I am. I came to Australia when I was four, but you're a more recent immigrant in a sense. And I've always found it surprising that so many immigrants are actually against opening up immigration further. Why do you think that is? I'd hazard a guess it may not just be about migrants. It might be around the values and their economic position uh, as well. So... You know, if I'm feeling slightly economically threatened, if I feel more vulnerable economically, I think those migrants may take a more conservative position. I mean, once I'm in and I have privilege, it's very easy to forget about other people. The the evidence generally is that as people get more comfortable, more powerful, more wealthy, 
they become less empathic. Interesting, interesting. I'm going to move on to our second part of this podcast. And the second part is really focused quite in depth on the philosophy of the principle of charity. I'm going to ask both of you, if you could, and maybe we'll start with you, George, is to summarize the strongest points of Bob's argument. But if you could keep this down to a minute or two, please. So just the three or four big points, not not anything more, just the three or four big points. And the reason we focus on this is because part of the principle of charity is to seek the truth, not win the fight. And, you know, putting up the weakest argument of the other is not conducive to the truth. I mean, it is a lot easier to defeat a bad argument that that we've created when someone that is different to someone's actual position. So we do like to focus on this. So in that vein, George, the three strongest arguments of Bob's around migration. And then actually, Bob, I'm going to ask you to give uh, George a score out of 10 on the charity barometer. Okay, let's go. (laughs) Straight off the top, the strongest point of Bob's argument is Australia's carrying capacity, that we are... that we are only fertile on the coast, mostly on the east coast of Australia, and our population tends to cluster along the east coast. Okay. That's the first point. The second point, uh, and the second point follows from the first point, we've never really asked the question of what the carrying capacity is. Mm-hmm. So even if we felt the need to add to, the, to our population, we don't know where to put it, which leads to the third point, Uh, An unregulated migration program, which is really what we've had, Uh, there's been an element of planning to it, but most of the migrants have clustered in Melbourne and Sydney. And the next 25 million people, which I referred to, uh, the next 25 million people will take the populations of Melbourne and Sydney. Bob didn't make this point, but he could have extrapolated based on my own data, uh, would have taken the population of Melbourne to 11 and Sydney to 10, because Melbourne will be larger than Sydney at some point in the second half of this decade on present trends anyway. So they'd be the three points. Beautiful. A, the country Beautiful. can't do it. B, we've never asked a fundamental question. And C, having left the door open for so long, we've concentrated too much of our population in two big cities. Love it. Bob, how, how did George do out of 10 on the charity barometer? Well, I think that's 10 out of 10. He's put it far better than I have. I put it as very, very, very persuasive arguments. Very persuasive arguments. <laughs> Fantastic. That's the highest score we've ever had on the podcast. Okay, Bob, it's, up, it's, it's over to you this time. I'll wrap it up into one. I think it's an argument about Australia Unlimited. Are we prepared to be really bold in thinking about Australia's role in the world, about Australia as a world citizen? And you can't really say you're bold unless you say we're going to be bold with all the risks, all the dangers in just going for high immigration because that brings more diversity and more talent into the country. And there are probably things you can do with a broader population base you couldn't do with a more modest one. Um, It opens up the possibility that Australia could have an independent national character that we'd be confident enough to leave the crown behind us and even as a more diverse nation, I considered the adjective polyglot and then discarded it, a more diverse nation, be more confident about standing on our own feet, whereas at the present time we simply define ourselves as 
a country, a medium-sized country with great and powerful friends. Okay. George, how did you do out of 10? How did Bob do out of 10? But but you don't have to just be kind because he was so kind to you. What, what's the real score? Can I? I'll give him nine because as a journalist, and Bob is a journalist by upbringing as well, you yeah. never want to give a yeah. politician uh, 10 out of 10. So <laughs> just on just on that point, I'll give him a nine. And the reason why I give him a very high mark yeah. and the nine is – is an equivalent of a 10 for a, a cynical journalist like myself uh-huh. uh, it's because he's been able to take my argument to its logical conclusion, which is Australia standing on its own. Okay. And he expressed it better than I could have. Let's stay with you, George. What's the weakest part of your argument? Now, the weakest part of my argument is the fact that even though we've done relatively well over the last 20 years in an unregulated sense, we haven't taken the time as a country to make sure that the, that, the, that the benefits of that migration was distributed fairly across the country. The thing, and now I do worry about this, and I know it's, 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 almost, it's, almost, it's, it's almost a contradiction in my argument uh, because I'd still like to keep the door open because I'd rather have the problem than not because I don't want to take Australia back to where it was in the first half of the 20th century. Uh, when it thought it could control, it, 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 it could become a more cohesive place by controlling the colour of its skin. That's essentially what the White Australia policy was about. The, the, difficulty, the difficulty I have at the moment is that uh, we have now hit the point, even after 20 years of this skilled migration wave, this 21st century migration wave that begins in China and is joined and then overtopped by the Indian wave, because it's concentrated in Melbourne and Sydney, the separation between the capital cities in terms of their ethnicity, in terms of their diversity with the rest of the country. The rest of the country is not just older than it was 20 years ago, it is whiter than it was 20 years ago because it hasn't had the same distribution of migrants that it did in the second half of the 20th century. Bob, how about you? What's the least confident part of your argument around limiting migration? Where where do you feel least confident? Yeah, probably two. One is the arguments about aging of a population. Um, I do want to acknowledge the publication by Sustainable Population Australia, which says, mounts arguments we should not fear an ageing population. That's very serious work. But I'd probably have to work harder um, uh, rebutting arguments from people like George that says lower immigration increases the challenges of an ageing population than uh, I would with any other arguments. And I think the, the other vulnerability is, given I'm persuaded just by what I see in the success of how we've managed immigration, the success of our multiculturalism, probably the public policy that we've been most successful at in the last um, 70 years, um, Speaking from a city, thirty-seven. Speaking from a state where thirty-seven percent of the population, or a city, thirty-seven percent of the population of which was born overseas, remarkable when you dwell on that, and putting us a long way ahead of the United States. Um, I'd just be, I'd just be a little scared of the talent that we won't recruit if we run immigration at more modest rather than more ambitious levels. Let's make this a little bit more personal. Bob, I mean, your career has been, you know, a stellar career in politics, which inevitably involves persuasion. George, you know, you're one of the foremost Australian political commentators, journalists. 
When you think about the principle of charity, and you are in the world of persuasion, uh, keynote address, speaking, teaching, what part of you do you think makes people the least charitable to you? What, what, what behavior or style makes people listen to you less? And let's start with you, George, and, and, and then we'll move to Bob. So the part, and I need to be conscious of this, every, every time I present in a room, although the last 18 months, like all of us, we've been presenting to uh, pixels on our computer screen. Uh, the thing I always have to be aware of uh, when I speak, and certainly when I talk up Australia, is that someone in the room is going to feel alienated by the conversation I'm having. And, and there is an operating assumption from some people, third generation and older Australians, mm. that I'm really trying to express uh, a future that excludes them. And that's not the intention, but mm -hmm. that's certainly a problem uh, mm. when you're talking out a diverse Australia. Right. So, in a sense, what I've been trying to do, and it's easier to pull off in your written work than it is in your in your in your performance in your mm. in your public self, because you can't hide who you are, mm. Mm. and you can't you can't control for every assumption people make about you uh, when they're receiving when they're receiving, say, a story on migration from uh, you know, <clears throat> a, a, a now privileged uh, son of migrants. So you think so, so? So so what you're saying is there are things that people may project onto you yep. based on race, gender, whatever it is, history that limits you. But and, and, sorry, the reason the reason why I make that point is yeah. you know if your if your primary job as a journalist is, is is to not just speak to truth to power, but to basically inform your audience, you need to be aware of your audience. And so and so some of my blind spots now, especially. In the circles I've moved the last 20 or so years, look, I haven't forgotten where I've come from. And I was picked on as a kid at school, so I have that radar uh, for other bullies, and so I will call that out in, in, in my public commentary. But the difficulty you have, the more, the more you're separated from your own upbringing and from your own past and from the people you used to hang out with who were at the bottom with you starting out, it becomes more difficult to see that in its many manifestations across the country. Bob, how about you? You've, you've probably had so many people around you, coaches, focus groups. I mean, what, what have you learned about yourself where you think, you know, that behavior of mine makes people less charitable to me? I think the, big, the biggest challenge for me when I speak about immigration, population, uh, global warming, Australia and China, Australia and the US, the US um, and its politics um, will get quoted on um, assisted dying legislation. I'm just very conscious that people could say these are elitist concerns. I grew up in a, a fibro cottage and my father was a train driver and so on, but uh, all my life I've been trying to to get a, a better education, trying to uh, exerting myself in self-educational pursuits to compensate for a very bad education. But I think that would make make me, for want of a better, a better word, somewhat elitist. The, the thing I would need were I, in theory, returning to politics, would be some appreciation of how battered a family is by cost of living pressures, tolls that could be taking over $20 a day 
the childcare costs and families locked out, it seems, of the housing market. We've always said this generation by generation, but to an extent in Sydney that is outrageously noticeable by international terms. And there's a gap between me and the things I talk about and what must be what must be the day-to-day hard grind so reality. So your understanding, sort of getting to grips with understanding others who are quite removed from you, as, as I think the challenge is for all of us. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and, and I am struck by their decency and charity when out on the road campaigning for uh, a Labor candidate, I get to talk to people in the streets and they're not resentful because I've been at the top of politics and, is, is, and, and could be seen as part of the elite that's kicking them around. Yeah, okay. I, I mean, Emil and I frequently have this conversation. The principle of charity attempts to seek the truth, not win the fight. George, let me go to you as a journalist, um, as a political commentator, when do you think the pursuit of truth is not the most ethical thing to do? That's a really good question. I've never been asked that question before. I, I would think as a principle, as a journalistic principle, that uh, you should be pursuing the truth at all costs. Now, there are layers, there are layers of truth that may not be in the reader's interests, and, this, and that goes to, say, the personal lives of public figures that don't affect their public performance. Now, that, that decision, that's a moral choice you make. It takes you a long time as a journalist to get to this point, uh, which is trying not to, wherever possible, be cruel uh, when talking about public figures. Bob, is there any chance I will ever hear a politician from another side of politics, whether it's in Australia or elsewhere, say very clearly and frequently in, in a sincere way, not, not to game the system. You know, that is a great argument that they would say of the opposition. I, that is fantastic. I have changed my mind on migration policy. That is fantastic. Maybe our views are wrong. Will I ever get to hear that from a senior politician? Or is the structure and the DNA of the political system so against the principle of charity that that's just never going to happen? Well, political parties are coalitions of interests. They're not a collection of opinions or policies, they're interests. So that's a, that's a big restraint. Someone could sit in the leadership of the Labor Party and have a contemptuous view of, of a lot of the trade unions and trade union behaviour, but you couldn't offend your base by giving vent to it the way Whitlam might have done when he, when he postured and primed himself uh, in private, talking about his own side. And you really, if you're in the leadership of a party, you've got, to, you've got to nurture that party. You can't rubbish it or scorn it. You, you've helped me a lot because I think my suffering and my misery uh, about wanting this has now decreased. I sort of, I think the way you've described it as a group of self-interests a coalition of self-interested people who have to posit a particular position makes a lot more sense and maybe my expectations just need to be reduced. One of the dangers of the principle of charity or danger to the principle of charity is self-righteousness. Um, it's that 
And I define self-righteousness as sort of characterized by a sense of certainty or by certainty, sometimes with a moral superiority. And, and you know, we, we all have it at different times. Uh, often when we are self-righteous, we don't even know we're doing it because we're in a huddle with our colleagues or people who agree. I mean, Emil and I probably have to be mindful of our own self-righteousness about when uh, people don't demonstrate the principle of charity. That's going to be a risk going forward. Let me start with you, Bob. What do you enjoy about being self-righteous when you are? What's the upside? Because otherwise, none of us would be doing it. But what's the upside for you? Well, it's always, always nice to be confirmed in your prejudices. I think my temptation is um, to bully people and become talking, talking too loud, um, getting indignant, shouting down the other side. I wish I was confident enough about all my positions to be tempted by self-righteousness, but um, it's equally bad behaviour to talk over people and I wince to remember occasions, even yesterday, a dinner, when I've, I've talked someone down or been dogmatic about something, and it turns out they were right. We're going to have one more question, then I will close up. And it's sort of related a little to a conversation that both of you had with Emil around culture. And it, again, a, more of a critique of us, uh, of the principle of charity. But Bob, at what point does tolerating the intolerant pose a danger to our way of life in Australia? Well, it, it's, it's always somewhat dangerous, but, but wild extreme opinions burn themselves out and expose themselves as being fallacious, subject to the, the, the full public gaze. That's the hope we've got to have. Um, Holocaust denialism, for example, has been with us for decades, but it, it hasn't taken off for obvious reasons. Um, and we've got to hope that that's the case with the, the madness of QAnon. Um, there'll be a natural level at which it will cease winning supporters and expire, retreat. Now, that's, that's, a, that's a liberal hope. That's a, that's a liberal hope, but I think it's all we've got. Social media's got particular challenges because... Because the gullibility of humans reading something about about dry fasting or vaccination planting chips in you does capture people who don't filter it because there's no no evidentiary base for these propositions. Okay, thank you, George. Quickly from you, your answer to that. Yeah, uh, the danger of being too tolerant is the danger of. Uh, Allowing the loudest voice to continue to affect what you're trying, what argument you're trying to work for, or what discussion you're having. I think that's the danger of, of, of uber tolerism. Uber tolerism is that a word? Anyway, if we've invented a word, I'm sorry for it because I don't like it. <laughs> that is the that is the danger of, in, of of seeking to include every voice, especially when some of the voices at the margin aren't in there for the same reasons you're in there. They're not in there to have the discussion. They're in there to they're in there to win an argument, and you know, as phase one of a of a campaign, to then make it make their opinion the only opinion that flies. I think on that note, I want to close this off and thank both of you. Um, 
It's just been remarkably insightful. Both of you are very generous in your scoring of each other. You're either very generous people or brilliant listeners or both. Thanks so much to both Thank of you. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love you to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really goes a long way to helping others discover our conversations. You can also find Principle of Charity on social media, where we hope you'll join the discussion. See you soon. We're at the end of an era and on the precipice of a new one. What do we keep? What do we leave behind? Hear from 16 thinkers, including Stephen Fry, Roxanne Gay, Slavoj Zizek, Waleed Ali, Naomi Klein, Peter Singer, Sam Mostyn, and more. Eight conversations, eight responses in sound, one podcast to record this moment. Subscribe to the Festival of Dangerous Ideas wherever you find your podcasts and join us at The In-Between. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.